I am Peter Hartwig. The name Pete Hartwig might ring a bell. That's my dad in the brilliant pastel pink shirt. And uh, usually he would be up here now, but uh, I, I have requested that I be up here this week. And as a pastor's kid, spoiled brat that I am, they said yes. So there you go. Uh, I am here this morning for two purposes. One is to introduce you to my friend Dick Foth, and the other is to try and convince you to buy his forthcoming book. Uh, I... My bad. I admit that. When I was a second year in college, I went through a bit of a crisis of faith, but it was a very weird kind of crisis of faith because I still pretty much bought it all. You know, like virgin birth and Jesus walking in the water and everybody walking out of his Egypt. I was pretty cool with all that. The problem was I was just incredibly bored by it all. I mean, I had done this for a real long time. I've got the t-shirt, the tattoo, and the shot glass for the whole Christian faith. And so by the time I was like 18 years old, I thought I was kind of pretty over it. And then one night at M&L at Chi Alpha, this guy, this just supernova of a grandpa, walks on stage in jeans and a vest and starts talking about Jesus walking on the water. And he used two little phrases that I'll never forget. One was, faith only works in the dark, which has been preached here before. And the other was, maybe when Jesus, when Jesus gets up on the water... And he says, Take, uh, don't be afraid, it is I. Maybe that's like all one word. Don't be afraid, I am. Maybe that's just one idea all wrapped up together, that telling people not to be afraid and announcing that Jesus is there, that's all one thing. Don't be afraid, I am. So I went up to this guy at the end of the service, and it was Dick Foth. And I knew I knew him from somewhere, but I assumed it was through my dad. So I just said, hi, I'm little Pete Hartwig. Note, not Pete Hartwig Jr. Very different. Little Pete Hartwig, and we said hi, and... Well, a couple years later, he came back, and he did it again, and he gave a sermon, and I cried a little bit, and I walked up at the end of it, and I said, look, when you preach, I cry, and nobody else can do that, so would you mind if I lived in your basement? <laughs> and he said, sure. Sure. So the summer before my fourth year at UVA, I was a, um, a vagabond in Dick's basement, and we would just drive, and it was under the auspices of teaching me how to preach. So we'd, you know, drive, I'd, before I go to bed, he'd say, you're going to have breakfast at 8 a.m. with this person at this restaurant. Here's what they do. Go have fun. I'll meet you for lunch. We'll drive around and talk. So Dick just discipled me for a summer. And the more you get to know Dick, the more you get to know that he has met up with some pretty crazy people. I mean, people in politics that, that we admire and people in politics we don't admire. And people in, uh, wow, just about every walk of life from authors to famous psychologists to people in military. Dick has talked to all of them, but he'll also give me eight weeks in his basement. And I think that says a lot about Dick, that Dick is willing to give you the time of day, whether you're the president of this, that, or the other place, or if you're a 127-pound, 22-year-old, hopeful theologian, not entirely sure what's going on in the world, anybody can stay in Dick's basement. <laughs> and uh, Dick has a forthcoming book called Known. He and his wife Ruth wrote it together. 75% of it is taken leave, but Ruth's 25% is a real keeper. That's where the gold is. I'm just kidding. Um, and it's on how to have deep relationships in a shallow world. I happened to get a little fourth-run copy of it, so I've read it already. And I'm going to tell you now, it is worth the time of day. Please, please, please read it. You can pre-order it on Amazon. It will uh, change the way 
that you approach relationships. And if any of you have heard Foth preach before, you know that when Foth preaches about relationships, it changes the way you talk with your friends the next day. So if you want to keep that on your bedside table, buy this book, pre-order it. I'm sure it's at a very reasonable price, but I did not check before I got up here. Anyway, Dick Foth, come on up here. Is that me? I don't know. All right, knock him dead, man. Thank you, Peter. I wish my mother, who died seven years ago at the age of four weeks past 100, could have heard that. <laughs> she would be so proud. I love coming to Charlottesville. I love seeing you. There is something about this place and this space and you that is dynamic not just in this building, but in this region. I've been here numbers of times over the last few years, and uh, I'm grateful for the privilege of being here. So thank you, old Pete, young Pete. <laughs> old Pete, young Peter. Both gifted by the Lord. I'd like to talk to you today about Resurrection Afternoon. I want to tell you a story, I actually want to read you a story about trauma, about power, about friendship, and God and man. Last weekend, we had resurrection morning. Today, we have re resurrection afternoon and evening. Our lives are shaped by people and events. Think about your story, like, like Dr. Ingrid said up there. The ladies who are coming today, you're going to talk about, think about your story in terms of shaping events, good, bad, or ugly, and shaping people, good, bad, or ugly. That's how we tell our stories. One person and one event are my earliest memory. I just finished, um, I told the folks uh, yesterday that I was talking to that on, on St. Patrick's Day, just passed, I finished my 75th trip around the sun. That means I'm in the last quarter, and I told them that, that you know, the last quarter, I watched March Madness, and the last quarter, tremendous stuff happens. In the, so I'm counting on that, right? <laughs> but, my, but, my, <laughs> but my earliest memory was when I was three years old. My parents, at the end of the Second World War, were preparing to go as missionary educators to India, and we were in New York City in the summer of 1945, and um, I'm three years old, you know, I just turned three in March, and they said, we're going to go see a parade, it's about a victory, and our story today is about a victory, and when you have a victory, you want to have a parade, so it was June 10th, 1945. My dad, uh, today, he, if he were still living, he would be an iPad, iPhone, movie, you know, video junkie. But then he was head of the game. Had a 19, he had a, a, a 16 millimeter color uh, movie projector, Bell and Howell, some of you remember the name, and was taking movies of this parade. It's the largest parade ever in the history of New York. Four million people. It wound through 37 miles, all the boroughs. 
because on June 10th, 1945, about three and a half weeks after the Nazis had surrendered, the Supreme Allied Commander of all forces, Dwight David Eisenhower, was coming home and they had a parade for him. So what I did is I took a little newsreel footage and I took my dad's footage and this is it. This arrival by air begins a record-breaking ovation. New York and General Eisenhower. With New York's Mayor LaGuardia, the commander of victory in Europe proceeds to the climax of his welcome home. New York is really set for a triumph. That must be the key to Brooklyn. In Central Park, tens of thousands of schoolchildren, miles of them along the line of the drive through the park. Down Fifth Avenue, through immense cheering crowds. Lady, control your enthusiasm. He personifies victory in the bitter war against the brutal Nazi enemy. Down Fifth Avenue he came, New York's finest, uh, on their horses and a marching band. And then I got to see him. I was crowded in between all those people just a little guy, and here is Dwight David Eisenhower. We called him Ike, standing up and waving at the crowd as buckets of ticker tape came out the windows. And as he swung past us, my dad took the camera and panned around, and there on the right, that's my mom, it's my sister, and that little face down in the corner is me. That's just to prove that I was there, okay? I, I was adorable. You give it 72 more years and this happens. Stuff falls out, moves over, goes away. It's, it's a terrible proposition. So you who are young, just go for it while you can because, okay. So that's how a victory parade should be told. And this morning's story is about that, a victory won. But it was so fresh and so current that the people we're going to read about this morning didn't know. They, they didn't know there'd been a victory. And uh, this Jesus of Nazareth, whom they had been following, they'd had a prayed just a week before. When he came into Jerusalem, they thought, many people thought he was the Messiah, and they were waving palm branches and throwing down their coats and doing all the stuff they would do in Middle East culture to honor somebody who was a king. That was just like seven days ago, and here we are a week later, and he's gone. He went from hero to goat, just like that, and they crucified him, and he's gone, and these two disciples are heading home. So at this moment, they had been cheering, and at this moment, they're struggling. They're on a country road. They're in shock. They're in grief. It's springtime in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. It had been this huge thing. And, but the last 72 hours, from Thursday night to Sunday night, has been crazy for us as apprentices, as disciples, because we had dinner with him, and the next day they crucified him, and then they buried him, and we thought he was going to be our guy. 
their leader and hope, Jesus of Nazareth. Not an old guy like me. He was a millennial. He was 33 when they pinioned him like a butterfly against the sky on that Roman cross. The question is, what do we do when trauma hits? Well, the story will show us. One of the things we do is to run for our friends, to be with someone who cares, and that is this story. The text is found in Luke 24, in verses 30, 13 through 41, and I'm going to read the whole thing. So it's a, it, it's a lengthy text, but, but I want you to hear this, this piece of the story. Now that same day, the same day that Jesus was raised from the now Jesus has come out of the tomb, right? He, he's come, but these two people don't know. You say, who are those two people? Well, we'll see. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. Now this is Sunday morning, or Sunday afternoon they're going. They, they wouldn't have gone on Saturday because that was the Sabbath, okay? They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, uh, what are you uh, discussing together as you walk along? They stopped. They stood still, their faces downcast. And one of them named Cleopas asked him. Now, Cleopas was one of the disciples, not one of the twelve, and Evidence might suggest that the second disciple was a woman, his wife. It says that the wife of Cleopas was at the cross on Friday watching him die. So let's just say that for the sake of this story, that they were together. And Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? He asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. They didn't have the New Testament. They don't have like John 3, 16. That hadn't been written yet. The gospel that I'm reading this morning had not been written when Jesus is on, this, on, the, on the road with him going to Emmaus. So he explained from what we call the Old Testament, the Torah and the prophets, who Jesus was and what might be expected of Messiah. In the next six weeks, uh, the pastors here are going to have a teaching on where is Jesus in the Old Testament? How does that work between the Testaments? What, what is the truth about him? What was it that Jesus was explaining to them on the road to Emmaus? So if you want to know what he said to them, come back for the next six weeks and you'll hear it explained. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay, stay with us. 
for it's nearly evening, the day's almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. Just about that time, they said, we know you. he's gone, you know. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? He opens their eyes, and they describe what they felt because he opened the scriptures to them. They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. Now, you understand, this is nighttime, seven miles away. Dangerous to be on a road in that part of the world at night. I mean, what, what kind of impetus was it? How, how tremendous was it? They got up, and they head back to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them, the other disciples, assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen, and he appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. So he's disappeared out of one room, and bang, he appears. In the, you know, that'll scare the bejeebers out of you. That's why you say peace be on you, because you're scared spitless. And so that's what happened with angels. Every time you see angels, said people were scared. Well, of course. Anyway, and, and so while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled and why do, you, why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. And, you know, they're just standing there, apparently just dumbfounded. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? I mean, that's, that's what you'd expect out of the mouth of the risen Lord, some profound thing like, uh, got a snack? Yeah. <laughs> they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. And it's like the gospel writer says, so there, there you have it. There are so many facets to this story. How he approached them, he just joined them on the way. What he said, he asked them questions. What he did, it's a, it's a little craziness in the story that the way he proves that he's real is that he breaks bread and eats a piece of fish. What's that about? I mean, certainly it could be a little more staged than that. But the pivotal point for them was when they invited him in to their house, I guess, and he broke the bread. It, it was only 72 hours before that he had been in the upper room with his disciples, at least the 12 and maybe other, that he broke the bread. They, they'd broken bread with him a bunch of times. I don't know if it was his style. I don't know. Or maybe it's just coincidence. Maybe it's just that he broke the bread and at that moment their eyes were... I don't know what that is. But there's this thing about God who uses natural things to show us his supernatural self. I'm always looking for high drama. I'm always looking like, beam me up Scotty or something. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm looking for some drama or some avatar or some something. But this is the God who comes along and in the very place in my life that is the most natural for me because 7.4 billion people on this planet eat. Some eat more than they should. Some don't get enough. 
but all 7.4 billion people eat. And the fact is that he went to the cross and was crucified in part because he ate with the wrong people. In that culture at that time, who you ate with was your identity. That's, that's who you were saying, I'm like them. What, the, what his critics didn't understand, that when Jesus ate with people, he wasn't the one that was changing. They were the ones who were changing. And so they had eaten with him a bunch of times, and in that simple act of breaking the bread, their eyes were open. There was a revelation in the middle of belief, disbelief, incredulity, doubt, wonder, too good to be true. He did something that they connected to, and they remembered. This is Jesus' approach to teaching. This is Jesus' approach to revelation. I'm going to tell you what's coming, i.e., the Torah and the apostles. It's going to come, and then I'm going to tell you what came. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to say. I'm going to say it. Then we're going to reflect on what I said. That's his. And we almost never get it the first time. I was telling some folks the other night, in sales, take 17 times before we get it, before we buy. Okay? We almost never get it the first time. Peter, Simon Peter, who's a natural leader, but he's got issues. Simon Peter is not stable. And Jesus looks at him one day and says, I think I'm going to call you the rock. Because that's what Jesus does. He looks at your life and you think it's one way and he says, no, 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 no. He looks at Peter, who's all, he's a natural leader, but he's explosive and he's not always productive and he shoots off his mouth. He promises, he, he makes the, the boast of Beowulf legend or something and then he can't perform. And, and Jesus looks at him and says, I think I'll call you the rock. And you can see the other 11 guys going, Really? Because either he saw something in Peter he was calling out, or he saw something, a place in Peter that he needed to put something in. And so here is Peter, who is with him three years, and on the very night before he goes to the cross, he says, I want to I be with you. I will die for you. It's a false paraphrase. Jesus looks at him and says, really? Let me tell you this, Peter. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you'll not only not die for me, you'll deny me three times. So that, that was just like 72 hours ago that that had happened. And when they meet in that upper room, people are responding to him. And a few days later, Peter has gone back to fishing because it's so crazy. We see Jesus and we don't see Jesus. And Jesus calls him to the fire. Remember, he called him to the fire and he fixed him breakfast, fish, fish breakfast, and sort of fish and chips on the beach. And, and, and he challenges Peter but Peter hadn't gotten it before. He had flunked the test a few days earlier because when he stood by the fire on Thursday night when Jesus was taken to trial, it's a particular phrase for a charcoal fire. And when he's on the beach, it's the same phrase for the charcoal fire. Only place in the New Testament those two phrases are used right there. And Jesus challenges him again because Peter didn't get it the first time. He like flunked. And in you know, the next, I think he probably got a C plus the second time around. But the fact is that here is the God who keeps coming at us because we're his already. He, he, has, he has us in his heart and he wants to put his heart in us. And so he keeps coming to us and he comes to us over dinner and he comes to us on the road and he comes to us by the creek and he comes to us in our lowest moments and our highest moments and he just is so insistent. He is so, so, just so persistent. He is so stable, like I am. 
It's not I do that I do. That's not his name. That would be a Western God. This is I am that I am, who is the most secure person in the entire universe, if you will, in all the universes. And you say, well, then that's the point of the story. Yeah, the point of the story is this. Jesus goes out of his way and into our way to open our eyes so we can really see him. When he walks in, stuff changes. When he engages us, we can never disengage fully because his, his thinking and his presence is so profound. When he opens the scriptures, he opens their eyes. Some years ago when we were in Washington, D.C., I heard the story that there were some, two or three senators together, and the guy was saying, he said, you know, one of the, one of the guys was saying, you know, I'm, I'm going to get one of those children's Bible story books for my grandkids. And this person, if I named him, you would know him instantly. He, he had served in cabinets, he had been in Senate, he had all these positions. Brilliant guy. He said, um, you mean like one of, those, one of those little books with the pictures and the real short stories where they take the Bible and they put it in picture? And the guy said, yeah. He said, you know, my wife drags me to church every now and again, and I sit in the back and I hear the preacher talk about Samson and uh, Samuel and uh, Jonah, and he said, I, I don't have a blankety-blank idea who those guys are. He said, is there any chance that, that I could get one of those little picture books? <laughs> because if it's not the arena you're used to, we need the cliff notes. We need, the, we need some way of seeing the scriptures where I don't have to wait through 38 pages or go. I need somebody. So when grandmothers tell little kids stories or sing them songs, it's the picture book. And sometimes when we're too old for our grandma to do that for us because we're 63 and we've been so successful and we're so empty, we just need a start. Give me a picture. Give me a one-page story. So there is something about the scriptures that goes deep into us. So when he opened their eyes and told them from the scriptures, that's way deeper than Shakespeare. That's way deeper than Faulkner or your favorite novelist or your best thinker on Choose the News Agency. Way deeper. Some years ago, um, I had a friend who had a rhythmic heart failure at age 28, and he was brain damaged. It took him 10 minutes to get him to the hospital. And so he reverted to being eight years old in his brain, and he had total amnesia. He didn't know that his hands were connected to his body. He didn't know his wife's name or his kid's name or anything. And after six months, I was so frustrated and so angry with God because you know you can get angry with God yet he's, he's not going away you know he, he just says oh both again you know but he, I walked into his room one day and I had this thought a hunch sometimes a hunch is actually a leading from the Holy Spirit and I walked in and I said Denny and again he doesn't the only thing he knows is that he was born in Zion, Illinois. That's all he knows. And there's a nurse there standing, a speech therapist, holding up cards, trying to get him to, to see the pictures. He said, she said, Denny, what is this? 
He said, I don't know. He said, it's a cup. He said, what's a cup? He said, you put water in it. He said, what's water? He said, you drink it. He said, what's drink? This guy had been brilliant. And I was so frustrated. And I just had this thought. I said, Denny, do do you remember this? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. I started to quote John 3.16 from the New Testament. And I stopped in the middle. And Denny, who doesn't know his hands are connected to his body, gets this faraway look in his eye and says that if, I, that if I believe in him, I won't die anymore. I said, Denny, do you remember this? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And he picked it up on key and sang it all the way to the end. And, and the nurse about passed out. And I started bawling. And I feel like, because I had told God, I believe that the spirit of man dwells in the cortex of the human brain. And when the cortex is damaged, that person is no longer human. They are subhuman. That's what I said. And I felt like the Lord said to me, my spirit goes deeper than the cortex of the human brain. And when your cortex doesn't work quite as well because you have Alzheimer's or dementia or whatever, I still communicate as deep to deep because the scriptures trigger that. You say, how does that work? Yeah, you can clap for that if you want. You say, how does that work? And I say, I have no idea. I'm just telling you what I experienced and what I believe to be true. Sometimes, sometimes the scriptures lead us to aha moments and our eyes are opened. And sometimes we have aha moments that lead us to scripture. I was teaching at a at a pastor's conference in Idaho some years ago, and the guy before me happened to mention I've got a science background. I said, that's kind of cool. And so I'm sitting at dinner, and we're at the same table. I said, so what kind of science? He said, math. I said, really? You're a pastor, and you've got a math background? I said, where did you take math? He said, "Um, Eastern Washington State University. He said, I was a sophomore. I discovered math. Took every math class they offered at the undergraduate level. And then I went to graduate school for math. I said, you're kidding me. You like talk up and preach. You stand up and preach every Sunday and you're a math guy? He said, yeah. I said, so, so, so you got a master's in math? He said, yeah. I said, where? He said, Yale. <laughs> Actually, I said, you, you, you got a master's in math? And he said, no, I got a PhD. I said, you, you have a PhD from Yale in math and you're a a pastor of a church in Idaho. He said, yeah. I said, like like what kind of math? Because there's all kinds of math. And he said, uh, algebraic geometry. Now, some of you math people, you know about these things. That's a very esoteric, very, it's like you got to have a brain to get a PhD in algebra. I got a C in geometry in high school. So I'm like in awe of this guy. I said, how did, how did you become a... He said, well, I was really smart, and, and my wife was smart, and we got married, and we came, and I'm teaching at university, and I was a tremendous professor, but a terrible husband. And we used to have knockdown, drag-out fights, and one morning, one Saturday night, my wife said, I'm taking the kids tomorrow morning and going to church. We never went to church. As far as I know, she never went to church in her growing up years, maybe a couple of times. But she, she took the kids and she took off the next morning and she looked the church up in the phone book, but she had little kids, so she was late. That's how that works. And yeah, because Satan hides their socks on Sunday morning. I'm just saying. <laughs> and so, so they just, they're driving across town and she came to this little church and she said, you know, if I stop here, I'll be on time. So it's always, you know, you always adjust 
to your schedule. So let's go to this one, because it's like franchises, McDonald's or Burger King, whatever, just pick one. And so she drove in, and it was a church that was pretty enthusiastic, a lot of this, a lot of this, and she was pretty cerebral, but she sat in the back, heard the message, got ready to leave, and the pastor came up and said, hi, how are you? Asked where she lived. She didn't want to tell him, just said, I'm on the east side of town. And uh, the upshot was, the upshot was that uh, a few days later, they're having a knockdown, drag out fight, and knock on the door. She went to the door. Here stands this pastor. Said, I have no idea how he found us. Said, it just in the area, thought I'd swing by. Said, well, thank you very much, and they shooed him off the porch. About three weeks later, having another knockdown, drag out fight. Here stands this pastor. That happened seven times in four months. And the last time she had the car packed, it was midnight, she was ready to go. And they went to the door and he said, I was praying. And I had this thought that maybe I should swing by. They thanked him kindly. He never got in the house, not once. And the next day when the heat had gone out of the fight and they were standing in the kitchen and they were just laughing and he said, that guy is nuts. He's, he's like an idiot. Here he just shows up and expects to get, what? And he said, I wonder what, you know, because every time he shows up, we're having a fight. He said, I wonder, I wonder what, the, what the mathematical odds. <laughs> and he said, and I stopped, and in that moment, Jesus opened my eyes, and I knew there was a God. And he started going to church and got into the scriptures, and here he ends up being, being a pastor. Sometimes aha moments lead to the scriptures, and sometimes, maybe more often, scriptures lead to aha moments. Where does he do do that. He does it in our darkest moments on a country road over dinner when we're trying to figure things out. You know, he stopped on the road and they, and he says, what are you talking about? Talking to Cleopas. And he, you know, fourth paraphrase, he, Cleopas is saying, where have you been? Under, under a rock? If I were Jesus, I would have loved to say, no, actually behind a stone. But I, you know, I don't. But when Jesus shows up when we expected something else. He surprises us. They expected a redeemer for the nation to throw off the Romans. He was coming to redeem their whole lives. He gives you way more than you expect. That's just who he is. You know, sometimes you just get surprised. I'm driving down here Friday afternoon, and I'm just north of Madison up here on Highway 29. There's this wonderful sign that surprised me. It said, Jesus Christ. King of kings. And it was that last line that surprised me. Firewood delivered. <laughs> I said, you know, I never put like those three things together. I, I did. So it just caught me off guard. But Jesus will always catch you off guard. He just will. Life is what happens, is, is the quote, life is what happens when you expected something else. I would like to submit to you this morning that Jesus is what happens when you expected something else. Amen. We desperately need the aha, the reassurance of the table, and to know that life is not hopeless. He is the God who opens your eyes. He is the God who surprises you on the road. He is the God who surprises you over dinner. He's the God who will surprise you in your most desperate moment. I close with this story. It was um, 
May 22nd, 2013, coming up on four years, that Ruth and I and some other friends, a group with whom, whom we met each year for the last 20 years, several other couples, were in Estes Park, Colorado. Estes Park, Colorado sits at about 8,000 feet east of Loveland, Colorado, west of Loveland, Colorado, in the Rockies. We were in a cabin, and it was our practice to go around the circle and sort of catch up since the last year. And one woman, one woman in the group was really having some struggles. And Ruth, my wife, who is very quiet, I am a person who finds out what he's thinking even as he speaks. Like a couple of things I said this morning weren't here in the notes. They just pop up and I say, oh, that's good. I want to use that next time. You know, that sort of thing. <laughs> but Ruth is a person who actually thinks before she speaks. And, and Ruth said, you know, I think I need to share a poem with you with this young woman. And... Um, she said, but my heart's pounding so hard, I don't know if I can do it. Well, we thought she was just nervous. So she shared the poem, sat back beside me. And when she sat back, I heard her gasp, and she slumped to her left. And I looked at her, and her eyes were rolled back in her head. Her face was turning gray. And she had suffered what doctors call sudden cardiac death. It's when the bottom part of your heart starts to fibrillate. And when that happens, it stop, stops pumping blood, and you lose blood to that cortex of the brain, and in an older person, your, blood, your cells start dying in two to three minutes. People started calling on God and calling 911. Long story short, in about three minutes, actually, a young rookie police officer runs into the room. We had laid her on the floor, and he, he does the chest compression, and you heard her ribs crack when she did that. The guys, which is what they're supposed to do, and, and the guys walked out of the room because we're wimps. The women stayed, and, and then the EMTs came, and they surrounded her, and they cut all of her clothes off. And all I could see was her feet sticking out. I'm sitting about seven feet away. They put the paddles on her, and they said clear, and I saw her feet come off the floor. And then, but all along, they're doing chest compressions, 100, 100 compressions a minute, one, two, three, and they're calling it, one, two, three. Then they said it again, clear, shocked her again, nothing happened. One, two, three, shocked her again, feet came off the floor. And then I heard the... I heard one of the greatest phrases I've ever heard. We have a pulse. They helicoptered her down to the medical center of the Rockies. <laughs> she doesn't like to fly. And they, and they helicoptered her down there, and the cardiologist said, we don't know how much brain damage has happened. We don't know, we don't know whether, whether she'll wake up in two weeks or in four weeks, or she may never wake up. We're going to do the HACA protocol where we paralyze her, take her body temperature down to 92 degrees for 24 hours, and then warm her up half a degree at a time over 12 hours. I didn't know at the time, thank God, that the national rate for resuscitation, resuscitation survival rate in this country, is 17%. 17% of the time they can save somebody in the field. When they take them to the hospital, only one out of 20 walks out. And of the one out of 20, only an infinitesimal number walk out with any, without any brain damage. So, you know, I didn't know that. Thank the Lord I didn't know that. So she's in the Hakka Protocol. People are praying all around the world. I'm trying to sleep at the end of her bed. And in the middle of the night, in the second night, a doctor walks in. I've only met him once in passing. And um, he told me later his father was the first African-American neurosurgeon ever trained in the United States. And he was trained at Harvard. And this fellow, Thomas is his name, walked in 
And he looked around and he said, you know, Dick, I think it's going to be okay. And there was no empirical data for that that I could see. And then he turned to me and said something a doctor had never said before. He said, may I pray for Ruth? I said, absolutely. He put his hand on her and with nurses and technicians coming and going in a loud voice, he said, Lord God Almighty, I pray that you will heal Ruth from the top of her head to the toes of her feet. And a few other things, and he left. I tried to sleep at the end of the bed, and three hours later, they woke me up and said, Ruth is waking up. Ten hours into the warming up protocol, she's waking up. They got up, and you have 12 nerves that run to other parts of your body, and they do a protocol. And the male nurse said, stand here with me. And he said, Ruth, here's the phrase, open your eyes. She opened her eyes, and she was really drugged. He said, look at me. She looked at him, and he said, Squeeze my hand. She squeezes his hand. She says, wiggle your toes. She wiggles her toes. He says, wiggle the toes on your right foot. He says, shrug your shoulders. She did that. He said, give me a smile. She's intubated. She gives him one of those. And then, then he said, give me two thumbs up. She went, and I lost it. I'm praising Jesus. I'm, th- I'm, go- I'm going off because it, it was like... It was, it, was, it was like it had this unbelievable trauma and she was dead and then somebody broke the bread and we saw it. That's how it happened. She woke up. The grandkids were concerned that she wouldn't remember their names. Our 10-year-old Noah said, Grandma, I was afraid you'd wake up and call me Ralph. And, <laughs> and the, but the fact of the matter was that Eleven days later, she walked out of the hospital, and they were using miracle language. And a year later, when we took some of her homemade apple pies back to the ICU and back to the EMTs, and by the way, if you're an officer, if you're a fireman, if you're an EMT, just want you to know I may not know you, but I love you. I'm just saying that, okay? But we took it to the police department at Estes Park and took a pie to the young rookie cop, who was the first guy in the door. We'd never had a chance to meet him. He got his own pie. And terrific pie. Ruth does a great pie. And gave him his own pie. And then the captain said, Dick, we know that you and Ruth are prayers. Would, would you pray for our police force? We had the detectives and the patrol officers. And so this thing that when Jesus shows up on the road and you hang out with him, he opens your eyes and he does miracle stuff like we sang about. And he does all of that. And so... Here is Ruth, she's almost ready to go home, but when you have an insult to your brain like that, eye-hand coordination's not great, and she was trying to eat. We're all sitting around, the whole family's sitting around watching her like a two-year-old, you know, and she tries to hit her, hit her mouth, and she hits her chin, drops it in her lap, this piece of roll, and she says, oh, you old fumble fingers, and then she looked up and grinned and said, but I did just come back from the dead. So we have, we have one friend who calls her Resurrection Ruth and another one who calls her Lazarus. <laughs> and he opened the scriptures to them and told them about himself. Then they broke bread together. And when he did that, he opened their eyes. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Perhaps there are one or 12 here who even in these moments and in this service have had an aha moment. 
we pray that your Holy Spirit will grow that. There may be some here who say, I've got to come those next weeks because I, I want to hear what those guys on the road heard. But I thank you that you show up when we least expect it, in our deepest trauma, in our greatest discouragement. You will come and walk with us. And we can ask you any question we want, and you'll ask us some. We are so grateful for the privilege of this time and place. And for the one here, or the several here, who are at a place where they just don't know if they can even go on, help them know in this moment that not only can they, but they will in the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name. tells us that they announced were not our hearts burning within us while Jesus explained the scriptures I know that some of you are sitting here and you've had this burning in your heart this stirring when Dick Foth was talking about Jesus I want to encourage you to respond to that and the way to respond to that is to invite him into your home and invite him into your heart. Jesus is the one that we all need, whether we know it or not. But I want to specifically say, if you are here and you have not yet chosen to be a follower of Jesus, I want to encourage you that if your heart was strangely burning within you, as you heard Jesus ex uh, uh, kind of explain this morning, I'm going to encourage you that you would open up your heart to him, that you would pray a simple prayer that I'm going to lead you in in just a moment. And that prayer is a prayer by faith. We open up our hearts to him. Now, some of you sitting here, the whole Jesus thing, you've been checking it out for a period of time, but it's new. I want to encourage you with this thought. You don't have to know everything about Jesus to accept him. You don't. You know how I know that? I married my wife without knowing everything about her. It's a relationship. But I believe this morning, while you were sitting here, you now know enough to say yes to him if you've never done that before. So I'm going to ask that you would stand with me and as we stand together, we like to say at City, when you stand and those chairs wobble, those are angels applauding. But I want to pray a prayer. And this might be the first time you've ever prayed this prayer. But I'm going to pray a prayer to lead you and to model what it looks like to say yes to Jesus. And so if you've been here and your heart was strangely warmed within you, as Dick Foth explained Jesus, I'm going to encourage you to accept him into your heart and into your home. So would you in this moment leave your heart open, but close your eyes as we pray. And a prayer to accept Jesus goes something like this, and I'll encourage you to repeat it after me. If you know in this moment that Jesus is here, you want to accept him. 
the prayer would go something like this. Jesus, I don't know everything there is to know about who you are. But what I do know is that I need you in my life. I've been through discouragement. I've been through rejection. I've been through all of the things that those disciples on the road to Emmaus have been through. And Jesus, I need you in the center of my life because it's dawning on me as I listen to this story that I'm not big enough, I'm not strong enough to do life by myself. I need God. I need Jesus. So Jesus, I accept you. Jesus, I pray in this moment that you would step into my life and into my heart. Jesus, in this moment, I choose, I choose to follow you. I choose to follow you. So Jesus, now I pray that you would forgive me of my sin, that you would cleanse me of having walked in the other direction without you. Jesus, thank you that you now receive me as I turn towards you and I believe in who you are. So Jesus, thank you. Thank you for being here with me this morning. I choose from this moment on to believe, to receive, and to follow you. What we're going to do next is we're going to take just a few moments to worship Jesus together. So I want to encourage you that if you just prayed this prayer, I want to encourage you to take a few moments to worship Him. Worship Him as the resurrected Jesus. Let's worship Him for just a few moments, and then I'll come out and close our service. Let's worship together.
I think in this moment, it would be wise of us to give Jesus a round of applause and worship and thanks. When I stepped into ministry, an older gentleman told me, he said, Pete, here's a rule, don't break it. He said, when you're the lead pastor of a church, make sure that everyone you invite to speak at your church is worse than you are. <laughs> then your people will love you so much more. Man, did I break that rule this morning. Dick, thank you so much for coming and sharing. Appreciate it. And I would say this, that whoever loves my kids, I love them. Dick, thank you so much for loving my son. I appreciate it so much. And now, may the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you through a resurrected Jesus. And may he give you peace. To conclude our time, if you would like prayer, our prayer team will be down front. If you prayed that prayer along with me earlier to accept Jesus, please connect with one of our prayer people down front. Just let them know that you, pr you prayed that prayer. What I want to encourage you to do this morning, if you would like to stay in worship, please feel free to do that. If you would like to slip out, please do so quietly, and you can hang out with your friends and family in the foyer. God bless you. We'll see you again next Sunday as we continue this series called There and Back Again from the Older Testament to the Newer. Let's worship together. God bless.
And I knew 